Pray for us. Uh, Father, thanks again for the chance to come around your word. Thank you for good food, conversation. Give us grace uh, to plow through the afternoon. Keep us attentive. And um, we ask for your ministry and grace now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's talk about concluding counseling, confidentiality, and then we're going to go into the, the next session after a short break where we're going to talk about data gathering and homework. So we got we kind of got to go to our, our hurry-up offense here because uh, we got a lot to cover, and um, I want to keep you guys awake too. So th- this is actually exciting to talk about concluding a counseling, not, not concluding the conference. Uh, that's coming later on. But concluding counseling, um, several reasons why you would conclude a counseling case for each describe how you would go about ending the counseling. I told you about the rocket last night, right? Remember the rocket that was supposed to go up? Uh, actually, I, so SpaceX had one in, in Canaveral. The big one's actually down in Boca Chica, down South Padre. Did you hear what happened this morning? Blew up. Yeah, it took off, was doing great, and they were going to staging, and the booster blew up, and then the upper stage. Oh, no, 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 this is all, this is all practice. But, uh, well, this is the Artemis rocket. This is the one that's, that they're going to send people back to the moon on. So, um, like the Apollo days, so we, we, you, know, you guys have all seen the right stuff. Well, you guys seen the right stuff? Right stu- How many seen the right stuff? Okay, you know, the, there's that sequence where that poor guy pushes the button, the rocket blows up, and he pushes the button, the rocket blows up, and he pushes the button, the rocket. There's like nine rockets blowing up, and eventually they got it working, and we got uh, the folks to the moon. So, anyway, um, some really great video on uh, on uh, space, SpaceX. So they, they call it a um, a sudden, rapid. What's it, they call it? A, what do they call it? A rapid, unplanned disassembly of the vehicle. Rapid, unplanned disassembly. We would say it blew up, but, you know, they're engineers. They always have a different way of doing it. It's got to be an acronym, and it sounds better than it actually is, I guess. But I don't know why I'm telling you all that. Let's go back to concluding counseling here. Turn your Bible to Galatians chapter 6. And um, concluding counseling. Now, when you answer this question, make sure you answer it for both positive reasons for concluding and negative reasons. It's easy to read a question like this and think, okay, what are all the things that could go wrong? But hopefully you're going to conclude counseling at some point because things go right as well. So Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul's wrapping up his uh, letter here, and he writes, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. That helps us to see, even though we could say a lot more about that, that when we're engaging in a ministry of confrontation because of sin, or we're coming alongside to care uh, because there's some problem that's happened, our goal is restoration. And hopefully, as Paul implies here, that we can get them to a place where they are restored in their walk with God, in their relationship with the local church. Things are coming together in terms of the problem. And so... One of the things we're looking for when we're concluding a counseling case is, have we actually restored the person to the Lord, to other people, to their church, um, wherever that is needed there, uh, the way Paul envisions? He said he goes on to say, bear one another's burdens and thereby, thereby fulfill the law of Christ. So that's what we're trying to do in counseling, in bearing burdens and, and restoring one another. So we think about concluding counseling 
we have some positive reasons, and this is one of them, right? We, we've successfully, by God's grace, helped them to be restored. Um, what criteria are you going to use? So, um, you know, some of you are already doing counseling. Every week I deal with counseling students of all, um, all variety. And that means every week I'm talking with students about graduation. And uh, here's what most students do when it comes to graduation. So I'm thinking about graduating my counselee. Awesome. Why is that? Well, you know, we're at eight or ten sessions. And J. Adams says eight or ten sessions is all you need. Um, you know, I, I feel like they're doing well. Great. How are they doing well? What, what, what metrics are you using, right? Right. What evaluation are you using? And what I'm trying to do, and they may be right, they may be totally right that they're ready for graduation, but, but what they haven't developed yet is some sort of evaluation protocol to put into place so I'm not making a decision to graduate just based on a, sub, a sort of a subjective assessment. So here's some objective things you want to think about, right? The initial problem that has led to the counseling has been, resol- has been solved, so they've been restored, to use Galatians language. You have evidence of spiritual fruit. We back up to chapter 5. We see evidence of that. Consistency in being a doer of the word. This is, um, th- there are different stages in counseling, right? So stage one, you know, you're getting to know them and you're doing a lot of education and a lot of teaching. You're helping them to think biblically about the topic um, and, and just you know, understand. Phase two is application. You're, you're taking what you've taught them and now you're helping them to put it into life, into practice, and you're, you're growing them and, and training them in, in terms of how does the, the text relate to my scenario. And then the third phase of counseling is helping them to do that consistently. Um, sometimes beginning students, what they do is, you know, it's like session 12 or 15, and they're like, I don't know what else to teach them. Well, what have you taught them? And they tell me, I'm thinking, well, it seems like you've covered everything you want to teach. Yeah, but, but I, I, I'm not a good counselor if I don't have something new to teach them. Well, where's that written? You know, it's like they, you know, the latter stages in counseling, you're not doing a lot of teaching. You might be refining, you might be reinforcing, but what your main goal is, is you're trying to get them into what James calls a consistent doer of the word. And uh, again, not perfect, but regular. You're trying to create those new habits and new uh, patterns of living. So are they being consistent? Uh, We want to establish both putting off and putting on such that there is regularity in responding in Christ-like ways. Again, not just avoiding sin, but walking in righteousness. We want to look for self-initiated growth and change in other areas. Your best day as a counselor is when your counselee comes in and says, um, you remember you were teaching me that change process and I've been applying that to my anger? I found out it works for worry and anxiety too. And you're like, yeah, when they start applying it to other things. Uh, Or maybe they start sharing it with other people. They'll say, oh man, this lady came up to me after the service and I said, you know, I've been learning some great stuff in counseling and so I started sharing her what I was learning and she was getting excited about it. And those are the sorts of conversations you go, okay, this person's getting ready for graduation. They're doing well, they're sharing what they know, they're initiating growth in other areas. Regularity in the spiritual disciplines, we'd want to see that. And uh, and you say, okay, so, so let's say I'm going to conclude the counseling for a positive reason. They're graduating. That's a positive reason. How do I do that? Because remember, the question says, list several reasons for concluding counseling, and for each one you list, explain how you'll do it. So don't just say, hey, they're doing well, so I'll graduate them. How are you going to graduate them? Um, There's three phases to graduation, okay? 
There's evaluation, preparation, implementation. Evaluation, preparation, implementation. Evaluation, that's what we're talking about. Are they ready to graduate? Am I applying objective biblical metrics? Am I evaluating? I'm not just having a subjective feeling about it. Uh, I'm evaluating. That leads to preparation. Okay, I think they're ready to graduate. What am I going to do? Well, there's encouragement, right? I want to encourage them and, and thank them and for by God's grace that, uh, well, thank the Lord by God's grace that they've, they've gotten to that place. Then I want to think about maybe the reduction of frequency of meetings leading up to the graduation session. I want to think about a transition to other discipleship. So we're going to stop formal counseling, but we want to see them engage in other discipleship ministries in the church, whether that's mentoring or a small group. So I've planned that out, um, encourage them to continue learning, share with others what's needed. So we've evaluated them. Yep, they're good. Now we're, we're preparing. We've got a strategy, a plan. We're going to cut back the meetings to say once a month. We'll make sure they continue to do well. We'll do that for two months and then we'll cut them loose. And then implementation, right, is where you actually do this. We actually cut back the meetings. We actually do the graduation session. We actually transition them to other discipling ministries. Okay, so evaluation preparation implementation so that's this is sort of how counseling concludes for ideal reasons right this is what we all want it want it to happen but you know there may be another sort of positive reason for graduating them or concluding not graduating but concluding counseling and that is if there needs to be a transition to another counselor that's not necessarily a negative thing but it is a step that you and i may need to make uh, sometime you say why would we need to transition to another counselor so so don't look at your notes just what what are, what are some reasons we might want to do that just think with me about counseling why why would we want to do that sometimes you guys are cheating okay now what's that yeah gender yeah they, you know they come to you you're the pastor uh, it's a female member and of course we're gonna we're gonna shepherd we're gonna care and then we're gonna try to bring a sister along in that Titus 2 fashion, okay? What else? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've had times with cases where I feel like I've done everything I can do, and maybe um, maybe they just haven't gelled well. Maybe I'm not an expert in that area. I've minimal experience. I've done the best I can, and, and you need a fresh set of eyes. Yeah. What else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've got a, I've got a student uh, out at Masters right now, and uh, you know a lot of a lot of the students are you know have kids and families, and some of them are right out of college, and so she's like single, and let's say she's 23, and she's got a uh, lady in her 50s with adult children coming, and you're going. It's not that good ministry can't happen it's that the the ingredients for the best ministry are going to be limited there so i told her i said you know you're doing a great job um go find an older lady in your church that can work with you on this um following that titus remember titus 2 is older more mature younger less mature and uh, there's a reason for that again that's that's not to undermine the word or sufficiency but the application to life the life experience is a real factor. Um, I remember when I first came to Grace Bible Church, and uh, you know Pastor Terry, he's like 14 years older than I am, and uh, you know he's been here for 
several, um, what has he been here, like 15, 16 years. And, uh, and so I start getting into this biblical counseling thing. And I'm like, hey, I'm going to go be ACBC certified. And uh, okay, I'm ready to counsel. Pastor Keith is ready to counsel. Anytime now. And, and they're all going down the hall to the guy that knows what he's doing. They're not want to come to the rookie. They want to go to the guy that, that's got the pastoral ministry experience. Has a life. And you know what? I don't blame them. That's why I go. That's where I go too. You know. So, um, but yeah, it's like, well, you're not offending me. I, I go down the hall too. And uh, so I had to get my experience. Actually, actually, how I got a lot of my counseling hours. I was, you know, 25 years old and didn't have any experience. And I'm thinking, okay, um, I uh, I partnered with a bivocational pastor in our town that we had a friendship with. He used to go to our church, and then he left to to go be this bivocational pastor. Well, he's got a day job. He's got a family, and and he's trying to do this pastoral ministry and run his business. And I said, hey man, I, I know I know you've got pastoral care needs. I would love to help you with that. And I was like his favorite person for the year after that. <laughs> so I worked with people in his church, and that's how I got my counseling hours. Uh, so sometimes you have a mismatch like that that you need to fix. So that's right. So some other ideas here. Um, uh, there may be a lack of experience on the, on the part of the counselor or the topic or life experience. Uh, need to follow the Titus II model, the gender issue. Or maybe there's a unique facet of the counseling situation which makes a particular counselor an inappropriate or less than ideal choice. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe there is some sort of interpersonal conflict and you as the counselor are implicated in that interpersonal conflict. Um, I I had a a situation one time where, um, uh, I remember the specifics now, but, but essentially I thought, you know what, I need to let somebody who's not connected to this run with it. Even though I thought by God's grace I could be objective, I don't I want to be above reproach and I don't want my connectedness to the situation to undermine good care that this person is coming to receive. So you have to that's hard because it's like I want to help people and you want to help people, but we have to have that level of thinking that says if if I can't be seen as objective, then um maybe I go find someone else who can. Uh, one of you mentioned this, maybe there's just a lack of progress in the counseling and you need a fresh set of eyes, you're stuck. Um, so in those scenarios, what do you do? Depending on the scenario, the counselor would simply explain the situation and offer an alternative plan with another counselor. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So the other... Um, the other scenario here would be, again, for positive reasons, maybe someone comes to our church and our community counseling ministry. Uh, the other, their home church knows about it, their pastor knows about it, and they've made progress. And we say, okay, now the time has come to transition you back to your pastor or, you, or your church. And uh, so maybe in that scenario, um, um you know, you include the pastor, you invite the pastor in or somebody in the church who can come in and get to know what's happened and some of the things that have been learned. That aids counseling training too, which is good. And then we, um, you know, we invite them to sit in for a few sessions and then we assist in uh, the transition back to their church under that new person. But we would agree, all three of those are good reasons, right? We graduate them, uh, we're helping them to get better care than we've been able to offer for whatever reason, or we're transitioning them back to their church now the other side of this is sometimes we have to conclude for negative reasons 
uh, if they're failing to be a doer of the word, right? They're not doing their homework. Or maybe they're unwilling to heed biblical counsel. We, we followed the, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault. And uh, they're not heeding. They're not repenting. They're not teachable. Maybe they're inconsistent in attendance. Maybe they have an unteachable attitude. Maybe they're constantly defensive. Or perhaps they're resistance to the gospel and lack of compliance. You know, we have that sometimes when people are not Christians. We share the gospel. We, we call them to repentant faith in Jesus, and they don't, they don't respond. And it's like, well, I can keep meeting with you, and I'd love to keep giving the gospel with you, but if you're not going to show up on time, if you're not going to do the work, if you're not going to be teachable, there's not a whole lot you can do at that point. So I, I, I have the always leave the door open rule for my counseling, which is like, hey, I'm grateful you've come here. It seems to me like, for whatever reason, you can't make the commitment right now to do the work. Um, and, and, and maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's, you know, I care about your soul and, and you're rejecting the gospel, which is your only hope to be saved. And um, I would love to keep talking with you about that. I would love to spend time with you. But at least in this context, it's going to require you reading some things and doing the work I'm asking you to do. And um, if that's not something you can commit to right now, that's fine. But we'll need to conclude the counseling until you're able to commit to that. And uh, so those are negative reasons that we might conclude counseling. Another negative reason would be if church discipline is actually enacted. And if we go to that fourth step where they are removed from membership and when the collective conclusion of that process is that they're probably not a Christian. And then, um, so at that point, uh, well, I mean, uh, several things could happen. At that point, you probably have elders involved in the counseling, or at least they should be involved in the counseling. Maybe the person has left the church. Sadly, that's often by the time you get to fourth step, they're gone. So they're not coming to counseling. They're not coming to church. But church discipline would be a scenario, a negative scenario where counseling would come to an end. Um, So, yeah, the scenario that I can see would be church discipline concludes that they're not a Christian. And maybe at that point they're, they're agreeing with it. Or maybe they're not agreeing with it, but um, you know we're saying, hey, we're going to treat you like the unbeliever that you appear to be. Um, and if for some reason they're willing to keep meeting, they're doing the work. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I mean, w- would any of us say to an unbeliever that needs Jesus, I don't want to meet with you? Yeah, I, I don't think we would do that, uh, assuming that the criteria that they were willing to to commit to the criteria. Um, and, and if not formal counseling, you say, I'll, I'll meet you at Starbucks, you know, you can come over to the house and we can, you know, talk on the patio or, you know, you can, you can continue an influence that way, but it's, it's the formal counseling that we're trying to figure out. Do we keep doing that or not? So how do you do that? And, and these are heartbreaking conversations, guys. You, you've had some of these before, but w- when you're concluding for a negative reason, I think clear explanation, um, and again, use a text of scripture so that they don't think, oh, my counselor doesn't like me or my counselor's giving up on me. You know, show them, you know, what what James is saying here is true of you. You are being a forgetful hearer and not an effectual doer. And uh, what, what does James say here? You're just going to spin your wheels spiritually. And, um, you know, I would love to help you, 
my role is is to give you counsel and your role is to follow that counsel insofar as it's biblical. But if you're not committed to that, we can't have a counseling relationship. That, that just is not going to work if you can't make that commitment. So explain from the text why you're doing what you're doing. Uh, appeals are always important. Um, ask them, are you willing to recommit to doing weekly homework assignments completely and on time? We don't have to end like this, right? Are you willing to do that? that that's the base level commitment I'm looking for. And then, again, if they, do, they don't agree or they want to go, um, then uh, explain how you want to proceed. Failure to do homework, you could respond like this. I'm happy to continue the counseling process with you, but for now, I will wait to make our next appointment until you have completed the homework. Please call the secretary to arrange our next appointment when you've finished. So you're not saying no, you're just saying it's conditional on you doing the work. In the case of an unteachable or sinful attitude, it seems clear to me that you are not interested in obeying God's instructions regarding the challenges that have brought you to counseling. Though it saddens me greatly, I do not think the counseling needs to continue. I am very concerned for your spiritual condition and must warn you that continuing your sin will only lead to eternal destruction. I appeal to you to repent, seek God's help to change and grow. I would be happy to work with you in the future should you choose to do so. So again, you're leaving the door open, you're making an appeal, but you're also saying we, we can't have counseling because counseling requires you, you your commitment in that way. And by the way, can I tell you a secret here? Have these conversations in your head before you need to have them with a person. Uh, think through what you're going to say, how you're going to say it. These are hard conversations. Your words are important. Your tone of voice is important. Your appeal is important. And obviously we want to do that in a way that honors the Lord and is charitable to the person. And uh, so sometimes scripting that out ahead of time is useful. Yeah, Betsy. When they're coming up with excuses, yeah, I think you have to evaluate those. If it's if there's always an excuse every week, you say, hey, this is kind of a pattern. You know, if, if their mom died last week and they didn't get their homework, well, that, that's a legitimate reason, right? But if it's, you know, mom died and then the dog ate the homework and then I was out of town and then the kids came home and then it's like, well, we make time for our priorities. And I'll tell them, I say, you know, I bet there's lots of things that you're still doing even though all those things have happened Counseling just isn't one of them. So I'd love to work with you, but I, I need you to make that commitment. Yeah. And then um, I've just kind of, my rule of thumb, I, I try to keep this in mind when I have to do this. Uh, I want to clearly communicate the problem and, and why um, the counselor believes counseling should conclude. Expressions of concern, I've demonstrated that in some of the illustrations. A biblical appeal called repentance and an offer to help in the future should things change. Alrighty, so that kind of that kind of gets us to that first part of the question, the the, the first <coughs> ACBC question. Any comments or questions on that? On concluding counseling? Yeah. Yeah, so if they go to your church, you're going to be knowledgeable of that. If they go to a different church, you're going to have to rely on them. Say, hey, go talk to your pastor. Ask what options are available. Maybe they know that. But what I would try to do is be very specific. So not be like, hey, you might think about joining a small group. You know, have a great life. But say, 
hey, you told me about this women's mentoring group that your church started doing last year. Um, between now and the next time we meet, I'd like you to sign up for that ministry and let me know when your first meeting is and what you're going to be talking about. Here's some suggestions if you have some input on it. And then we'll talk about it next time. And then that puts a little bit of accountability for them to go do that before you totally take your hands off the wheel uh, with the formal counseling. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, you can say, hey, well, you could say a couple things. You could say, what if we do a check-in session in six months? You might do that. Or you could say, hey, I'd love to hear from you. Don't be a stranger. You know, shoot me a text or an email or whatever your comfort is there. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, counselees become friends in when things go really well. And we don't want to just be like, hey, have a nice life. I'll never see you again. I mean, you know, keep that door open. Um, yeah. Do you always need to start by having the location within, if it's just a man's home, mm-hmm. like you then need to have the connection between with that person as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you certainly can. I, in our ministry, we don't always do that. Um, often we have people that are training, so there's like students in the room, so to speak. But I think the scenario where we would likely want to do that from the beginning is if we know other people are going to need to be involved in the case, depending on the specifics. And so we try to start off the counseling, building the team, so to speak there. Yeah. Correct. Depends on the issue. Now, I think just as a general rule of thumb, that's never going to be a bad thing, assuming you have the right people in the room. But um, I, I would say we just we don't do that as a pattern unless we think the case will necessitate it. Yeah. Would you ask the counselor if they were comfortable first, or would you just do it? Um, yes, uh, the confidentiality statement we use says there might be people in the room, and they're they're agreeing to that before we ever counsel them in in the statement. But just out of consideration to the person, we might tell them, "Hey, by the way, I know you read this on the statement, but." that we're going to have a student sitting in today or we're going to have one of our disciplers sitting in today and just as a courtesy. Okay, guys, let's uh, flip the page here and we're talking about confidentiality. Uh, I mean, they can, but if, if they refuse the confidentiality statement, we don't counsel them. So, and I, and I would say... If somebody is like really, really reluctant, we'll talk to them. And uh, I don't, I don't know that we would force the issue. Like if somebody's really uncomfortable and there was be nothing, no reason that we would have to have somebody in the room, we might skip it. And then maybe they, maybe they get more comfortable and we introduce them later. In. I think we would try to work with them, but it is in our confidentiality statement. So and, and we don't counsel them if they're not willing to sign that. Okay. Um, so speaking of confidentiality, let's talk about that. We have to talk about this because if we go to other arenas of life, if we go to psychology, if we go to medical practice, if we go to the legal system, even if we go to education, uh, higher education, there are um, all sorts of um, laws that govern confidentiality in each of those jurisdictions. So for example, as a professor, I I am legally bound to not 
share grades with other students. I can only show grades to the student that it's their grades, right? I can't say to Bob, hey, you know, Larry did horrible on that test. Or you can't, you remember back in the day, at least I'm dating myself here, where, you know, you take the exam, you go to the prof's door and they would have your name and, and the, it's like, how did I do, right? You'd find your name. You can't do that anymore. It's, it's illegal as a federal mandate. So um, confidentiality is big and we need to think about it uniquely in the Bible because of all of this. Um, and I operate in that realm as a pastor. I operate in that realm as a citizen of the state of Texas and the United States. I have uh, obligations um, as a professor. I have obligations as a chaplain. And all of those have different ways of thinking about confidentiality. So you've got to remember what hat you're wearing, right? So a scenario where you're counseling the child and does mom and dad, do they get to know? Yeah, so we would say as a general rule of thumb, yes, because the Bible says mom and dad have primary shepherding uh, authority and, and privilege there. There might be some rare situations where we would want to modify that and, and be cautious if we had... For example, a, uh, a child abuse situation where the protection of the child depended on mom and dad not necessarily knowing everything. So we'd, we'd have to walk that line in wisdom. But in general, yes. In general, yes. So what if the child is an adult, like 18? Yeah, if they're adult, then that's a different scenario. Yeah, and we may include mom and dad with the adult child's permission when that's appropriate, but we would not just, you know, make it happen without their permission. Yeah. Um, now, you know that in certain states, there are <coughs> laws being suggested and some laws that are actually in practice where the child is given rights and privileges that mom and dad are not allowed to know about. And, and, it, and it, it tends to cluster around things like abortion or gender transitions. And uh, you remember there was a big uh, court battle up in Indiana, of all places, uh, because um, of legislation like that that was being introduced that would have made it illegal for uh, biblical counselors to counsel according to biblical principles because the state was saying you can't tell this child no to a, a gender reassignment surgery and it's illegal to tell the mom and dad about it if they come to you so i'm thankfully we don't have that here in the state of texas but you know the day may come when when we do have to face that so so confidentiality in general uh, the bible promotes privacy and confidentiality uh, between persons when we're talking, right? We think of uh, Matthew 18. You don't need to turn there. You know it, right? If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in <coughs> private. So even in confrontation, I'm not going to uh, you know make a big public scene. I'm going to my brother uh, confidential, confidentially and thinking about um, you know trying to honor him in that way. So. Um, 
the general commands to show love and respect for neighbor would apply to that, right? Uh, a, a love and respect would mean I'm trying to honor this person's reputation, trying to honor that conversation. And then obviously prohibitions against gossip and slander. Gossip and slander doesn't make it like I can't, if, if I ever talk to anybody about anyone, it's gossip and slander. We understand gossip and slander has a motive behind it. And, um, but we have to be careful because sometimes, sometimes our motives in sharing information are less than godly. So um, who was it that was talking about um, uh, fleshly curiosity? Have you heard that phrase before? We, we have to make sure that we're not asking questions out of fleshly curiosity, but we're actually asking questions because we need to care for the person. Uh, that helps us to guard against that. Yeah. So as a biblical counselor in these church, when another church member comes to you about another church member, mm-hmm. and they say, you know, I have a concern because John blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Do you, what, how, do you how do you specifically handle that? Do you want to know the person's name? Do you just say, don't tell me their name, just come to me? Yeah, yeah. So if someone in your church comes to you and, and starts to talk about someone else in your church, yeah, I, w- I would stop them and say, hey, um, first of all, um, is there like abuse? Is someone's life at stake, right? No, none of that, Pastor. None of that. Okay, okay, great. So scripture would want you to go to that person. You stop them. Okay, yeah, good. I would stop them, yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, maybe they know, maybe they don't know. Tell them what is their biblical obligation. And tell them, I'm, I'm happy to help you. You know, if you go to the person and they don't receive it, then I'd, I'd be glad to go with you and get involved. But at this point, it's between you and that person, and you need to go to them if you haven't already done so. So what if they're coming to you for advice mm-hmm. on how to deal with that person? Yeah, I think you can talk in generalities. Generalities. Yeah, and that's where I, I, don't, I don't know that it's a violation of Matthew eighteen fifteen if a person goes to their pastor and says, I've never done this before, tell me how to do this. Because they're not gossiping, they're not slandering, they're, they're not spreading rumors. They're going to their spiritual authority saying, give me instruction on how to do what the Bible tells me to do. I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to do that. I may not, as a pastor, I may not want to get into all the details, right? I may keep that, you know, between them. But my role as the shepherd is to help them to know how to be obedient to that command. And if they're seeking my advice on it, I'm going to help them with it. Um, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Okay. So that's interpersonal. It's private. Guy says, I'm a brand new Christian. I have no idea how to do that. You say, well, okay. So once you go to him, um, pull him aside and say, hey, I, I appreciate you. Um, explain your concern. You know, it seemed like uh, you were speaking harshly or angry with your children after the service last Sunday. And, and I love you, I'm your brother, and I just wanted to bring that to your attention because that seemed out of alignment with how we would normally want to talk with our kids. Mm-hmm. You know, so just you know, giving them language, giving them an approach, asking them to clarify, you know, did I observe that correctly? So um, this is a new believer who's talking to a child Well, I'm saying if the person, the person coming for advice is a new Christian, and so they, they aren't familiar with how to do confrontation. That's and, and I mean the other person might be an unbel- uh, a new Christian also, but I don't think it's a violation of confidentiality if I give them instruction. But I'm not I'm not saying like oh well, tell me all about it you know and I like that's where I need to say unless someone's life's at stake or mur- or uh, uh, you know abuse or something like that then I want to just 
let them handle it with some instruction. Yeah. Okay, so, so in general, we're trying to guard confidentiality, promote privacy. There are several cases where the Bible either requires or biblical wisdom dictates that others be informed. So, um, and we can sort of categorize these under different headings, right? We, we can think about government. We can think about um, extra training. We can think about input from another counselor. So, so number one there, when the counselor needs input from another counselor, pastor, or church elder in order to better care for the counselee, we put that in our confidentiality statement. Hey, we, we, we might need to consult. You know, usually, usually if... Um, if you're trying to help, some, let's say you're a doctor and uh, you're saying, hey, doc, you know, this is hurting. This isn't right. I have this disease. And your doctor says, I appreciate you coming and I want to care for you. This is not my area of expertise, but I got a friend that works down the hall and his specialty is what you're going through. Would you mind if I talk to him? I mean, you'd be grateful, right? You'd be like, hey, that's awesome. That's a, so that's what we're doing here is we're just saying, hey, I want to help you. I don't have as much experience or the guy down the hall has more experience, so we're going to do that. Or uh, similarly, when the counselee attends another church and it's necessary to get the other person's pastor involved or appropriate leader about the counseling scenario, that's simply honoring Hebrews thirteen seventeen, right? That we recognize local leaders have the jurisdiction over the care of the person. And so if they're going for counseling outside of their church, that's that that's okay as long as their pastor is is good with it and supportive of it and uh but that that pastor really has the authority to do that uh, and by the way i I would not make that communication without the counseling knowing about it so for example, if I wanted to get the other pastor involved, I would ask the counselee to initiate that and I suppose the would there be a scenario where I would just pick up the phone and call the other pastor? Yeah. Yeah, if I thought the person was in danger and I had little to do to help them, if I thought someone else was in danger, a child was in danger, something like that, I might pick up the phone and say, I'm calling the pastor whether this guy knows about it or not. But most of the time, you're going to let your counseling know about it and let them initiate it if possible. Obviously, there are times when the law requires it, you hear about child abuse, you live in the state of Texas, you don't have a choice. 48 hours, you must report. Um, or may, maybe it's not required, but maybe biblical wisdom dictates that civil authorities should be informed. M maybe it is uh, a criminal activity. Maybe it is domestic abuse. And domestic abuse in the state of Texas, is, you're not a mandated reporter, but you are a recommended reporter. And, and there are times, you know, I, I had a time one time where um, uh, many years ago, uh, a couple, and uh, there was domestic abuse going on. There was no children involved. Uh, children were grown and gone. But, um, but there was domestic abuse. And I thought, you know what? Um, I can't ensure protection. Can't do it. So... Hood County Sheriff's Department can ensure that. So I encouraged the party that was being abused to reach out to the civil authorities, and then we circled back and did the same thing. Not because we had to do it or the law required it, but because we thought that was prudent given the danger of the situation. Um, 
Well, commanded would be like child abuse where, where the law requires you to report. With domestic abuse, you're not required to report. It's recommended in the family code. Yeah. Yeah, yeah suicide would be another one where you'd want to get other people involved. So, um, you know, and, and let's let's say... Let's say the person is hallucinating and they're acting crazy and they're threatening. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know what's going on, but I can't ensure their own protection or the protection of people around them. But again, our local law enforcement can do that. So that would be a scenario where you would, you in a sense, break confidentiality for the sake of the person who was in danger or the person that was threatening to do dangerous things. Um, again, someone may be harmed unless getting others involved would intervene. When church discipline requires that others are informed because of the counselee's refusal to repent. So we go back to Matthew 18. Private confrontation. They don't. He doesn't listen. You bring one or two along to establish the validity of the situation. If he listened, he refuses to listen to the, the group. Then you tell it to the church. Matthew 18, verse 17. And uh, you say, well, that, I remember uh, um, years ago when uh, a friend of mine heard about church discipline and she was like, that's gossip, that's slander, that doesn't honor Jesus. And it's like, I hear you, I hear you. Let me, let, let's back up and let me explain what church discipline is and isn't, because she had never heard it before. Her church had never practiced that. And so once I kind of laid it out that, that what we're calling church discipline, we call it uh, corrective discipleship discipleship excuse me um and and the idea is we're trying to rescue the person remember we're down at the ymca we're all enjoying a great day at the pool the kids drowning in the pool third step church discipline is everybody gets up and jumps in the pool to try to rescue the drowning child right that that's church discipline it's a rescue operation it's not a whole church gossip session and there's a difference so in that scenario we would in a sense break confidentiality for the sake of following biblical instruction um, and, and with that, we have to think about, uh, as a part of this question, how do believers interact with civil authority? So let's, uh, we, we've alluded to it, let's, let's head over to Romans chapter 13. And uh, you guys know this, but um, this is a hard text, uh, you know, and, and even working through the, you know, the COVID years and restrictions and legal mandates, you know, and again, in the state of Texas, we were gloriously spared from a lot of that. But a lot of our friends in other states that were more restrictive and how do we interact with the government? Well, these are hard verses. Romans 13, 1, if every person is in, excuse me, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now, let's just stop right there. Who's Paul talking to? Christians, where they live? Who's who's uh, who's running the government in Rome in the first century? The emperor, right? The Caesar. Now, now uh, uh, Nero is probably not in power when Ro- when uh, the letter to, to the Romans is being written. But by the time we get to the letters that Peter writes, he is. Okay, so there's probably a little bit of uh, delay there if, we, if we're doing the uh, historical arithmetic correctly. But the point is, he's not saying that to 21st century American citizens living in the state of Texas that have a, a representative republic and you know democratic input um, that have 
rights given to us in our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution, etc., right? He's saying that to first century brand new Christians living in the Roman Empire. And you go, you think we've got it bad? <laughs> you know, the actual, con- imagine the readers hearing that for the first time going, let me get this straight, Paul. The Caesar, the guy who is persecuting believers. Uh, and we know, what's Rome going to do in a few more years here, by the way? What are they going to do? They're going to destroy Jerusalem. They're going to destroy the temple. And you're going, like 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 that government is what we're supposed So, right? I, I think it's a lot harder for that original audience than it is for us. And, and, and we know that there, there are exceptions. It's not unilateral submission. We understand that. But that's the general principle, is we are to submit to the governing authorities. And he goes on, there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Now, he's saying that about Rome, but think backward. He's talking to Christians, many which have Jewish background, and they're going, we've read our Tanakh, right? We've read our Hebrew scriptures. We had to remember, let's see, uh, Babylon, Assyria, the Philistines, the Egyptians, every single one of those violent, hostile, pagan, persecuting people groups that afflicted the people of God since you know, the Abrahamic covenant was instituted, you go, yeah. All along the way, the Bible has said the, the sovereign hand of God is over all of those institutions and all of those governments. What, what, did, what did Solomon say? Um, the heart of the king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, right? You know that? Um, that's hard to believe sometimes, isn't it? Which is why we need to rehearse the verse. Verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists authority, meaning governmental authority, has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves verse three for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior but for evil and you're thinking paul have you read the local roman newspaper do you want to have no fear of authority then do what is good and you will have praise from the same for it the government is a minister of god to you for good but if you do what is evil be afraid for it does not bear the sword for nothing it is a minister of god an avenger who brings wrath on those who practice evil And he goes on there. And again, we're not saying there's never an exception, right? Paul appealed to Caesar when he was wrongly accused, right? That's legit. That's not inconsistent with this. Uh, Peter, when he was commanded by government officials to say, you can't preach Jesus, what did he say? We have to obey God rather than men. So if it comes down to it, our allegiance is to God if the government is calling us to something opposite. But in general, we understand, we believe in the sovereignty of God, that he is over governments, and uh, so, so here's our particulars, right? We're, we're called to submit and obey. Our attitude should reflect the biblical truth that God has established it. Uh, civil authorities um, are established by God to uphold what is morally right, to protect citizens. By the way, just a footnote, because we live in a representative republic and we think about what should our government be insofar as we can contribute to that, well, here's our paradigm. This is our paradigm of what government ought to be in the eyes of God. And so a text like this should guide us as we go into the voting booth, shouldn't it? 
Believers honor God by honoring governing authorities, praying for them, cooperating. Peter says, remember your leaders, right? Pray, pray for those in authority. Um, I, I hope you do this. I was just really convicted by that verse years ago as, as a new Christian. I've got a section in my prayer journal called Praying for Government Authorities. And it's got president, vice president, my senators, my representatives, my mayor, my city council. And whenever we have elections, I put it in pencil so I can, up. Oh, He's not an office anymore. This guy is, right? And, but it's there because, well, I'll just confess my sins. It's really hard to be angry with people and frustrated with them to no end if you're praying for them regularly. You know, when we see government do things that are morally wrong, if we're praying for them, hopefully that gives us a right heart uh, so I find that um, if I'm praying for them, that usually keeps my heart in a good frame when they do things that are not right. And then we're only called to disobey the governing authorities when commanded to sin or to violate a clear biblical command. We see that illustrated in Acts chapter 5 and other places. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. We kind of got some gray area in that. Oh, we did. Oh, we did. Yes. Yes. Well, let's pray. Um, we'll uh, look at the time. Uh, yeah. No, no, seriously. And I, and I know, you know, we had to deal with that. Um, you guys weren't in our church in those years, but I'm sure your church had to deal with that. And those of you who go to other churches, we all had to deal with that. What our elders did is we sat down with this text staring at us and said, how do we apply these principles to, right? And Lee's one of our elders. We, we had meetings every week, sometimes multiple weeks. Lee was our liaison to keep up on the latest government whatever thankfully at least in the state of texas here we know that uh, a lot of the mandates that other churches were facing were not made mandates in the state of texas so we were very thankful for that but we still had to think through you know how do we honor the government and whatnot so that that is yes that that is a decision that churches had to make individuals had to make in line with biblical principles and it was hard Uh, i think one of the things that we realized is that um uh we love freedom we uh, don't like to be told what to do. And sometimes honoring God collides with my desire to do what I want to do. So, um, but we all had to work those things out. And depending on which state we were in, which jurisdiction we were in, we all had to look in the mirror and say, Lord, I'm, am I honoring you today in this? So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And then come up. Yeah. 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 And that and that's where, um, you know, charity, giving preference, mm-hmm. conscience issues, all those are other principles to consider. So, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Micah. Yeah, well, I would say we don't have to 
but we do. You do. Yeah, we, we, so what, what we, I'd say our practice would be, we'll ask the counselee, does your pastor or somebody in, in leadership know that you're here? And if not, please let them know because we want to make sure that you're coming with their blessing. Um, if it's someone like Brian or you guys that we know, we'd be like, we'd probably pick up the phone and say, hey, we know you guys, they go to your church, help me understand, you know, why are, why are they, not, not that we're unwilling to help, but there's probably a reason for that. And so we just want to make sure, especially with a, with a like-minded church, we would want to ensure that we're working together. Yeah, and that's where, you know, so, let, so let, let's say I'm, let's say someone from Brian's church, Micah's church, uh, comes over here and says, hey, love Brian, love Jonathan, love those guys, but we just we just wanted some privacy, you know. I'd be like, hey, I get that, no no problem, but, but you know, and then I'd probably have a, a short little ecclesiology talk about how the body of Christ is about transparency and and living life together and, and um, ministering to one another, and we, we can't do that outside of community. Um, so what I'd probably say is, hey, um, we are open to working with you, but it needs to be something that your pastors are in agreement with. So why don't you go back and talk to Brian, talk to, talk to Jonathan, and you know get back to me. Or have them call me. Yeah, We'd probably handle it like that. Yeah, because that, that's our theology. You know, we don't we don't believe in Lone Ranger, Lone Ranger Christianity. So, uh, especially if it's it's a, a friend, it's a like-minded church. I mean, and I'll tell you right now, we've had times where people from our church have counseled at Grace Community Glenrose, our friends in Glenrose, and there have been times when people at Grace Glenrose have counseled here. But there have been good reasons for that, where the elders are all on the same page and we're all in agreement. So we we just want to make sure that that's happening. Right. And that's where, you know, my flesh is, is insidious. And, you know, I, maybe you guys battle this like I do. Sometimes when that happens, it may be like, hey, they're coming to me. They're coming to our ministry, you know, in that, and, and it's like that little bit of pride. You go, no, no. You know, my, my theology has to overrule that and say, no, um, I believe that their church is the best place to receive care. And I want to honor, even if their church isn't totally like ours, I'm, I still believe that's their church and that's the God-instituted authority through which they ought to be receiving care. And if we're going to supplement that, we're open to that, but we want to make sure that their church is, uh, is okay. The other thing, guys, is we, we have worked very, very hard over the years to develop a reputation in our community that what we do is care for people. And if I start stealing sheep from other churches because I am not honoring local churches, local pastors, e- even if, like I said, even if there's some differences, they don't have to be just like us, I still believe what God says about the church is what God says about the church. And, and if it's so horrible, I think they need to change churches, well, I might have a conversation with them about that. But what isn't acceptable, I don't think, is to dishonor what God has said about a local church and, and, and downplay the authority that he gives that local church to, to care for people. So we, we wouldn't want to strain that reputation by um, giving the impression that we're not honoring local churches. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's do this. Let's do this. 
we got a break. I don't want to keep you from your break, so go to your break, and then if you have other questions, we can keep talking. So.